Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. It's time to get all your Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Nubo and Dave Tree. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to Making Tracks. I'm your host, Mark Newbold. Today, we're bringing you a special episode from MCM Birmingham Comic Con. This was the Imperial Troops Talk. So this was four guys who have been Imperial officers in the Star Wars original trilogy movies. Now, you've got three performers from The Empire Strikes Back. You've got two performers from Return of the Jedi. You've got two guys who are only in Empire. You've got one guy who was only in Jedi, one guy who was in Empire and Jedi. You've got Michael Culver, Julian Glover, Kenneth Colley, and Michael Pennington. So here we have it, the Imperial Troops Talk from MCM Birmingham Comic Con. Enjoy. We have from the Star Wars movies. Please give it up for he played Moff Tijin, Gerald in Return of the Jedi. Please get up to Michael Pennington. He played General Maximilian Veers in The Empire Strikes Back. He's been in, the, in many George Lucas movies, and including Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, and he's been James Bond. Please get up for the brilliant Mr. Julian Glover. He played Admiral Fermius Piat in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Please get up for Ken Colley. And last, by no means least, he played Captain Lord Nida in The Empire Strikes Back. Please give a massive round of applause to the brilliant Mr. Michael Culver. Song? Oh yeah, they're all on for you. There we may. So, good afternoon, gentlemen. Welcome and thank you for taking the time out to join us here at Birmingham this weekend. So, first of all, uh, going down the table then, how did you all get your roles in the Star Wars films? By being wonderful actors. <laughs> Fair question. Or you, or being out of work, you take your choice. I, do, I do know how I got mine. Pure nepotism. My next door neighbour was Robert Watts, who was the executive producer on Star Wars and later on Indiana Jones. So you can take your inference from that. Literally, I was in the garden doing the lawn, and he popped his head over the door and said, over the wall, and said, um, "We're making another Star Wars. Do you want to be in it?" <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Thanks very much. So we all got five days. Easy for some. I had to audition for it. And very hard audition it was too. Uh, I, I was called in to meet uh, the director who said, I'm looking for somebody who would frighten Adolf Hitler and I think you're it. So I said, okay, <laughs> if you're going to pay me, it's fine. And how, what do you think has made the franchise so endearing even after all of this time, that it's still attracting large audiences like this today of all ages. We don't look a day older, do we? <laughs> I don't know. What is the secret? <laughs> I think it's just the character. It's rather like uh, Lord of the Rings. 
it's just the endless quest that is going on in the, in the stories. And it doesn't stop. And it, each episode produces more questions. I think it's a very interesting series. I've only seen one, the one I was in. But the rest of them, I believe, are wonderful. Um, if I could tell you a little story and take a little bit of time. I can't see you, so I cannot see how many of you would remember what this country was like at the end of World War II. It was on its knees. The center of its major cities was lying in rubble from the bombing. Food was rationed. And a brilliant filmmaker from Hungary, Alexander Korda by name, went to the British government and he said, I want to make a film that will lift the country's spirits. This film is going to be a fantastic extravaganza with special effects that have never been seen. It's going to be in the new Technicolor and no single producer could ever afford it. And a young man then by the name of Harold Wilson at the Board of Trade agreed with him and agreed that the government would guarantee the film against loss. It starred a young Indian elephant mahout called Sabu. He'd never acted before, but he had the vitality of an animal. You couldn't take your eyes off him. And the film was called The Thief of Baghdad. It came out and it became the most phenomenally successful film in the history of British movies, especially across the pond in America. And over in the state of New Jersey, there was a young boy of about 10 years old. He went to see this British film everybody was raving about. And he came out of the showing at the end and said, that's the greatest thing of its kind I have ever seen. And one day, I'm going to do that. The boy's name was George Lucas. So as we sit here, all of us, it pleases me to think we're all the great, great grandchildren of the thief of Baghdad. And just to finish this, uh, three or four years ago, I wondered about if I got that film now, I saw it when I was seven, what would I think? How would it stand up to what's happened since? And I sent for it, and it stands up, it's wonderful. So do yourself a favor, get a copy, and see some of the beginnings that bring us here today. And all of you prior to your work in Star Wars would have been you know, on the stage, you've been treading the boards in theatre. How did you think your, your time in theatre prepared you to take a trip into the fantastical world of Star Wars? Yeah, uh, you'd all with that work in the theatre prior to Star Wars. How did that work prepare you for your work in Star Wars? Speaking for myself, I've never had a problem with movies and theatre. My problem is reality. I'm never very good at it. Uh, I mean, it's... I'd certainly done a lot, of, a lot of classics at Stratford and so on, a lot of Shakespeare. And actually, it's not so different. You know, it's the fight between good and evil. Um, there are 
ghosts or the equivalent of ghosts. It's an adventure story. Shakespeare would have loved it, but then Shakespeare would have been writing for the movies anyway if he was alive now. He wouldn't have bothered with all that poetry, I don't think. What I do think, when you've done, had a career which has gone in that direction, you know, theatre first, movies later, rather than vice versa, which can happen with, with young actors, you're much readier for the particular difficulties and techniques of working on cinema, because you have more confidence. You know, you're more, calm, you're more sure of yourself, you're still afraid of failure, but you have a basic confidence by yourself, and you can pick up the technique of working on close-up or working in this kind of story much more quickly, because it's just really another fable, isn't it? It's just another folk story, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, we are all experienced theatre actors, and it does prepare you for a great deal of things that go ahead of you. There's, there's nothing more, actually more tricky and more delicate uh, than working in the theatre, and so it, it really does prepare you. But to answer the question from earlier on, what is the allure of Star Wars, all I can say is that when I first saw the first Star Wars film, I can't speak for these gentlemen, except maybe I can. I was absolutely knocked sideways by the originality of it. I'd never seen an aeroplane go down between rocks and buildings and things low like that. Uh, we have one of the pilots here today um, of those planes. I'd never seen anything like that. And that started at the very beginning of the film. And it went like that, I was already totally immersed in the story. And that's what all the Star Wars films, the first three Star Wars films have done. Also, the first three had that sort of religious content. Um, the thing called the Force, which we all know is a representation of a philosophical idea, which shows that we have something outside us that helps us go through our lives, which we obey its precepts, we will, uh, we will be successful or whatever. They all have that, that thing. They also had Alec Guinness in it, which lent a tremendous gravitas to the films. Uh, and a lot of people that had never seen Alec Guinness before saw him in that, it had that. I was unpersuaded by the religious bit in the first film, but when I saw the second film, I thought, ah yes, I understand what that is now. Uh, it, it, it's come home to roost, that idea. It's being used properly. It is not being used at all now in the more recent films, and I find that a great lacking in the more recent Star Wars films. And that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with Julian wholeheartedly. I think the force is an important uh, idea within the films. I regret to say that I haven't seen any Star Wars films except Empire Strikes Back, which is what it, which I was in. Um, and I hate to disillusion you all, but it was simply a quick week's work. I knew nothing about the film. I hadn't seen the first one. The only thing that really impressed me was the size of the set. When I got down onto the studio at Elstree, I thought, God, I, I was used to television sets, which quite frankly are not much bigger than this stage. Um, 
that one, it was vast, and it also was meant to be metal. But of course it wasn't, it was painted uh, hardboard, and you had to be incredibly careful where you trod, because otherwise you left scratches, and then it had to be painted again and swept. It was a nightmare. But um, I enjoyed doing it, and the director was a really charming man. Irving Kirshner, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really nice man, and a very good director. But I would agree with Julian, the force, when the force disappears out of the series, it loses quite a lot. I'd been out shopping with my wife, Mary, and I knew that I was going to be in this thing called Empire Strikes Back, a space film. Well, my early years were full of space films that were just laughable. They were ridiculous and awful and completely unconvincing, so I thought, oh my God, I wonder what I'm in. Well, as we were going back to our apartment, we passed a long queue outside one of the old-fashioned Odeons. And the queue was four deep and round the block because they were playing the first Star Wars. So I said to her, listen, I ought to go and see this because I'm in the next one. I might get a clue. We got in. And we got the two seats on the front row, so it was a bit like that. But when those words came on and disappeared over your head, I was completely hooked. And I looked around the cinema, which was as full as an egg, and you could have heard a human hair drop. And I said to Mary, this is going to be wonderful, and I'm in the next one. Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, Star Wars fan, Fanthatrax fan. And one of the things that Star Wars did, it revolutionized not just cinema, but also the toy industry and everything around merchandise. Have any of you ever seen your action figures and what's it like to know that you're going to be immortalized not on the only on the silver screen but in a in a figure in a in, in someone's collection played with by children for long many years to come um yeah i know this we, we've we've signed an awful lot of them you know <laughs> across the plastic packing i think it is an honor it's great um yeah Simple as that, it's great for your work to be memorialized. I am enchanted when I see the, the models of my character. Um, they've recently got one right, which it actually rather, looks rather like me, which is, which is quite flattering. Um, I want to disabuse you of something. We don't get any money at all for the merchandise. There must be some little bit of, at the bottom of our contract, there must have been, uh, because I, I missed it, and I'm sure we all did, uh, that not one penny do we derive from the merchandise, and I find that, in retrospect, absolutely disgraceful. Julian, we all, we all get money from the merchandise. I didn't know you were. <laughs> didn't they tell you? Yeah, but you're a star. <laughs> That's the truth. And one of the things about um, the world that Star Wars created is the fans that it has. It, they're vibrant communities that 
are all over the world in every in, in the most far corners you can imagine. What has it been like for you to meet these people and to kind of interact with them? It's, it's completely taken me by surprise, I must say, because the most ardent fans from the original food, uh, movies are almost as old as me. Um, and what and it strikes me on occasions like this, because I've only done one convention before today, before this weekend. I I see absolutely how much it means to people, um, the way in which it hit everybody's buttons and still does. And some of those same fa fans are entering late middle age now, as, as, as I am, um, and that's tremendously moving. Um, I completely underestimated. And really, I now feel far more part of the, the family that some people talk about the Star Wars community since coming to the to these conventions here. And I've decided that as far as um, cooperating and doing more of them, I shall definitely double my efforts. I hope so too. I think it's uh, quite extraordinary meeting so many people and from so many different societies, places. Uh, it's extraordinary. I don't think there's anything else I've done in my life that has attracted so much attention um, and made one feel almost part of a community of people all around the planet. Very odd. The only people who haven't seen it are possibly those people on the Andaman Islands. And I don't think I should be showing it to them. Um, that's about it. As about the toys, I'm very flattered that there is my character has been put into one of those. But it does appall me, as it should all of you, the plastic that is used to make these damn things. I rather imagine that one day I'm going to find myself washed up on a beach somewhere, looking at myself in the sand. Looking forward to seeing you washed up on a beach. <laughs> I, I've said this at a couple of conventions, I don't know whether you may have heard it, but the only thing more powerful than the force is the fan. Without you, there is no Star Wars. So thanks for changing my life. I feel that's a nice way now to open the questions out to you, ladies and gentlemen in the audience. So if you'd like to ask any one of our panelists a question, all you have to do is put your hand up and I will bring the microphone around to you and you can ask away. So hands up if you would like to ask a question. I've got one here in the front. Let's go down there. Hi there, question for everyone really. Why did George Lucas think that the most evil men in the galaxy had to be English? Ask me another. Well, okay, I'll, I'll venture an opinion on that because he's cheaper. Uh, that's a great deal to do with it. Uh, they had these big American stars who cost a great deal of money. Uh, with all these tributes being paid to the film, and I join everyone in that, uh, the films, fantastic franchise, totally original, wonderful, wonderful. I really do think that. 
Um, we were paid very poorly to do it. Uh, I know I keep on about money, but it is a very important element of one's life. And when he says, thank you for changing my life, I join you in that. Uh, but also, it's a fashion that, um, with American-made films, that the villains are English, and that the heroes are American. This has been common, hasn't it? It's, uh, and they've had difficulty since the, uh, uh, whatever you call it, with Russia, the easing of the, the, the borders with Russia, because we can no longer make Russians automatically as villains. Uh, it used to be quite simple. Before that, it used to be Germans. Uh, now they're in a problem about their villains. So uh, it's a good idea to cast English people villains. And another reason is that they are terribly good at them. <laughs> Who could possibly play the emperor better than... Well, Ian McDermott's a Scottish actor, but that counts, that's all right. Yeah, you couldn't cast that in America. <laughs> and we have a question here towards the back. Who was your favourite character out of Star Wars? Who was your favourite character out of Star Wars? Who is your favourite character from the films? General Veers. No, that's silly. Well, I suppose Harrison, really. He, yes, I think he's the, the, the heroic figure, isn't he? Uh, Mark Hamill as well, of course, but more Harrison for me. Uh, I also love Yoda, uh, very fond of him, very fond of him, a very, very good creation, a very imaginative creation. Most of those extraordinary animals or creatures or whatever you call them were very original, but I think probably Harrison, yeah. I second that too, and you know he very nearly didn't do uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, I don't know what the issue was, some contractual issue. So we really didn't, really nearly didn't have him. But I, yeah, I mean, his story is fascinating and long, so I, I second that completely. Yeah, I, I agree with the proceeding, um, or should I say, fond of Yoda I was. <laughs> Very nice way of putting it, Ken. Thank you. Could we hear that again? I have a question from the young man at the front. Did you realise that the film would be as famous as it is now? Did you realise that the film would be as famous and well-loved as it is now, when you did it? No, no idea. We didn't even know that ours was going to be as good as it was. Uh, I know we were all in it. Uh, but I don't think this has any relevance to, certainly in my opinion, that Empire Strikes Back was the finest film of the first three. Uh, I was coming to that. Uh, since when the films, when they came back again in a more modern form, they've been brilliantly made, absolutely fantastic effects, wonderfully done, I mean, mesmerizing stuff, but they lack, they now for me, lack that central heartbeat which the originals have had. And uh, I don't think I'm the only person, uh, I, well I'm certainly not at this table, but I know I'm old. I'm old and of course I hold old, old, old views. 
but I think a lot of the young people here, I've spoken to a lot of you fans, talking of fans, uh, of, of, who are very young, who all prefer the first three films. Uh, and I don't think that's for no reason at all. I think it's also in the nature of things, it is almost completely impossible to predict or even entertain the thought that a film you're shooting is going to be a huge success. Unlike in the theatre when you can perhaps sometimes predict success in rehearsals. But the, the process of filming, as you probably know, is like putting together a massive jigsaw with big pauses of several months in between one piece and another. I mean, the whole business of doing it, and then the, the, the editing and the post-production and so on, I, I will can't imagine thinking we're onto something here when you're just doing you know a two-line section from 17 different angles and going home again and many people myself included uh i was i was actually on the, on the film for, i think for four days in a week and then i went away and thought no more about it so this was a, a complete surprise when it when it broke g'day mate how you going this is adam o'brien the phantom from down under Every other Saturday on Fanta Tracks Radio, I host a show all the way from Quinlan's Cantina in the Gold Coast of Australia, where we give you Star Wars news from Australia. You can catch us on Fanta Tracks Radio, on iTunes, catch us on SoundCloud, or on the actual site, www.fanthatracks.com. Fanta Trackers are everywhere. Um, I, I think that this happens every now and then in history, that somehow the public having experienced the awful nature of what went before are waiting and waiting for that one to come along that suddenly explodes into a whole new world and that's what star wars did it didn't have to convince anybody it was unanimous almost across the planet because the audience were waiting for something in this nature of film that was Star Wars and Star Wars delivered. And the question from here at the front. And how did that... I have, sorry, I should have said there was one brilliant one before, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, but that was the only one, sorry. And how did that make you feel? What? Being in the film. Well, as everybody has pointed out, at the time that we were making them, we didn't know this. It was another job to do, and not a particularly easy one with special effects the way they were. The pleasure is now being here and knowing where it's gone and what it's done. The man I mourn is poor Richard Marquand, who directed uh, Return of the Jedi, who died not so very long afterwards. And I'm not sure that he even lived to uh, come to realize what he had achieved. I think his experience, to be candid, I think he felt a lot of the time that George Lucas um, was so much present on, 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 on the set that he which perhaps didn't have the freedom that he would have liked. Then it was George Lucas's baby, very much. But I'm sorry that Richard, who is a sweet, sweet man, as well as a very good director, never really reaped the harvest that everybody else, including us, did. And we have a question in the middle for a young lady. What's your favourite film? 
What's your favourite film aside from Star Wars? Grapes of Wrath, End as a Man. Um, I find it very difficult to narrow it to one. I'm a film goer and I have half a dozen. But if I'm forced to say Chinatown. You're off into the Italian New Wave, Antonioni's L'Aventura. There are so many. It's in, listen, for you, the questioner, who I can't see, you must have many favorite films. The standard of making films now is so high that more often when you go to the cinema, it's good than it's bad. When I started going to the cinema, more often they were bad than they were good. And the standard is so high. I, I, I come out of cinema sometimes reeling with how wonderful uh, certain aspects of a film might be, or the theme, which is so original and interesting and totally human, and we can relate to it all even though it's something which happens miles and miles out of our lives. This is what the cinema is doing now, as far as I'm concerned, in its very upper echelons. But the middle echelons are now getting better and better and better. And God bless them for it, because it provides employment for lots and lots of people, not just actors. It's fantastic, the, the film business in this world. The furthest places in the world are making movies now. Little villages in outer Mongolia making their own movie. Uh, that might not be very good, but it will grow into something else. Uh, we are very privileged to, to film-wise, to live in the time we live. Well, that's enough. And we have a question for a young man at the front. How was the audition? Ghastly as all auditions are. Quick, though. Was only required to come on stage and say a couple of lines although I didn't know what I was talking about, but as I obviously looked right, and the director could understand me, it was enough. But I hate auditions. Well, I can just describe anything that any actor will recognize. You climb a flight of rickety stairs sometime early in the morning to find a smelly little office, and there's one person in there who's never seen you before, and who the hell you are, puts a camera on you and says, okay, go. It's horrendous. You walk away feeling much smaller than you walked into the room, at least I do, to think my work is going to be seen on this level. That's auditioning for you. So if you're ever going to do it, take a drink beforehand. We have a question from a lady here in the middle. What was the hardest part about embodying your character and why? The hardest part of embodying my character, and my main scene was a conversation with uh, Darth Vader, because I'm building the new Death Star and he's not satisfied with my progress. Now, as you probably know, um, the dear David Pryor's blessing uh, normally played the part of Darth Vader, but of course none of his body was visible, and the part was revoiced on afterwards by James Earl Jones. I think that's common knowledge now. But the result of that was that Dave sometimes, not always, didn't entirely have the lines learned because he knew perfectly well they were going to be voiced over later on anyway. So I would be listening to him and taking in what he was saying, even though I couldn't understand anything he was saying because he was going and I would have to react. That's why there's quite a lot of overacting for me in that particular scene. 
Um, and it's, you know, I say this with great affection. I mean, that was a hard gig he had to do, and he did it beautifully. Um, but it was strange <laughs> to walk beside someone who had no human skin visible and was talking a kind of gobbledygook. I've got a least favorite scene, um, which is the contrary to your question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. These guys know all this, excuse me, fellas. Um, it got to the scene when I fight the Battle of Hoth, it seemed single-handed at the time. Um, I was in a, <laughs> a, a sort of, I was up on a gantry on the top of a crane uh, in a sort of um, a, a mock-up of a control panel. Behind me was a blue screen. I presumed I was driving something, so I, I was being shaken around like this with a blue screen behind me, and I had to do the scene. Well, I had to speak a lot of rubbish, stuff which Michael's quite right, you don't know what it is, which is quite effective when you hear it, sort of technical jargon and all that stuff. And I got to um, a particular line, which wasn't, well, a particular line, which I dried stone dead on. I couldn't get the line right. I went 16 takes on it. 16 takes. Well, fortunately, our director was very tolerant uh, quite a lot of the crew weren't quite so tolerant and I was of course like a puddle on the floor I was so embarrassed having sp spoken all this rubbish stuff quite clearly and easily it got to the line this particular line out now, I'm now going to tell you what the line was because um, I want you to concentrate on it and to understand my problem with the line ready target the main generator <laughs> 16 tapes. <laughs> no, no different emphasis. He's just saying. No, no, no emphasis at all because I get crying on it. <laughs> no emphasis in the least. So, that was not a happy time. I had so much gobbledygook to speak that I didn't know if I was saying it backwards or forwards. Not that that would have made any difference to the meaning. And when the film was released, I walked into a friend and he said, Ken, I've just seen you in Empire Strikes Back. I liked it so much. It was so good when you were frightened of Darth Vader. And I said, I wasn't frightened of Darth Vader. I was frightened of the dialogue, but it worked. <laughs> well, I didn't have any trouble with the dialogue. I can't remember having any trouble with the dialogue, but I had a lot of trouble when he killed me. Because as I told you, the set was painted matte black, it was meant to be metal, and to actually fall to your knees and not make a mess of the paint was very, very difficult. And I think I did need to do it a couple of times, two or three times. No, not 16. <laughs> I had to come down very, very gracefully onto my knees uh, and do it in a sort of staged descent. But I got there in the end. Come on, Julian, it makes you a record holder of some kind. 16 takes for that sentence. And we have a question from a young man here in the middle. What's it like knowing you were the villains? Were we the villains? I wasn't the villain. I wasn't the villain. <laughs> no. Just because we fought on the side you don't like. Yeah. We were all career soldiers. Yes. Career officers, all, all doing people. our best. Yes. I will not hear a word about us being villains. You're the Jedi.
And we have a question from a young man here. Can you confirm that you're still loyal to the Empire? No, no. I don't rethink. And a question in the middle again? Uh, I'm a member, so, I'm sure we all are, of a, a large number of uh, 501s uh, all over the world. I've got them, I have them all over my wall at home to prove it. 501, I'm an honorary member. Ah, that's good. I have a question here from the gentleman. So, um, how do you feel about the decision to devour Darth Vader? As um, <laughs> I have heard his original voice, and I do agree it did need to be dubbed over. I think it's a bit tough on Dave. I mean, James Earl Jones is one of, the, one of those God-given voices, because it's real, rich bass voice, which I suppose if you look at Darth Vader, you might think that is the voice that might come out of all that black metal. But I've, I've always thought it was a bit hard on him, really, because it takes away a large part of his, his job, his craft. Yeah, but Darth Vader was a, a black carapace, wasn't he? But he had someone inside him to speak for him. And uh, Dave Prowse is not a, a skilled actor, um, so his voice would not have done for it. Uh, but I have to say, Dave did learn every single line of that script, and he got it absolutely right every single time. He never went 16 takes on anything. He was behind that black carapace and spoke the lines properly. I could hear them in my scene, where you were unlucky. I could, I could hear them. And I do pay credit to Dave for that. But his voice simply wouldn't have done. James Earl Jones' voice is perfect for it. And that's why he was chosen, and is one of the reasons for the success of the films. That breathing and that very, very, very deep delivery is, is perfect for that. Hello, I'm Warwick Davis, and you're listening to Fanthatrax. And we have a question here towards the back. The Empire Strikes Back, yes, I know you all gentlemen absolutely adore that film, like everybody else, to be honest with you. Do you ever keep any of the props? I'm not talking about the blue screen in the back of you either. Did you actually have to take the props home with you if I kept anything of it? You couldn't take anything away from, from that sort of set. That'd have been on you like a ooh, absolutely not. I managed to steal a few things from, from other films, but never anything. If I'd managed to get my helmet out of the Star Wars, I'd be a rich man now. Oh, I've got a toy to, to, to tell you about that, about Indiana Jones. Any of you who've seen it will know that I get blown away at the end, etc. Um, by drinking the wrong drink. But this, this was prepared for three months in advance by me having a, a, a face uh, like a death mask made of my own face and they took that into the workshops and they worked on it and made it older and older and older etc and they based all the uh, stuff on my face on that. Okay so we did it and that sequence of my death took 16 seconds, took three days to shoot every angle, every error. Okay. At the end of it, that mask was still in existence. And I looked about 185 in it. And um, they said, do you want this? Well, yeah, fine, thanks, I took it home. And uh, my wife, Isla Blair, the actress Isla Blair, looked at it and said, Get, I'm not having that in the house, put it in the garage. So I put it in the garage. A few years later, clearing out the garage, I said, oh, look what I found. I said, oh, Christ. Bin it. It's disgusting. It's awful. Horrible. I binned it. 
Uh, about 10 years ago, I was doing one of these in Los Angeles, and I had one of the dealers who deals in all these things uh, came to me and said, do I have anything? And I told him this story, laughing, and he said, I don't know what you're laughing at, Julian. He said, if you had that now, I'd give you $35,000 for it. <laughs> so that's why they're very reluctant to let you take things off sets. I do have two items, which I will not dispose of until my son gets it and he can get the money from it. And I know they will be quite valuable. One is my sword from Ivanhoe, in which I played Richard the Lionheart. And the other is my coat from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I have both of those and they're in very good order. So you can now go away and argue among yourselves and I'll talk to you later. And we have a question from a young lady off to the side. If you could play any other character in the Star Wars universe, who would you play and why? Uh, I would play Admiral Peart Jr so he could grow up across a couple more Star Wars movies. Yes, I'd come back from the dead. The Emperor. I was going to play the Emperor. I've dueled with your dawn for the Emperor because he's so bad. Really bad and therefore needs an English actor and specifically me to play. <laughs> and we've got a question right at the back. Hi guys. So. With, this is more directed for the younger people in this audience. Drawing from your years and years of experience on film and stage, what would you regard as essential viewing for the younger people? Something that might not have come across in their day-to-day -day lives. There are quite mind. literally too many. Uh, and the sort of people I would like to talk about is Ingmar Bergman. And I don't suppose anybody here would be interested in Ingmar Bergman. He's a Swedish director. Um, but yeah, he, but he influenced me enormously when I was about 19, 20. Wild Strawberries, or Summer Wild Strawberries, I think it was. A uh, wonderful director. Um, so, yes, I would say look at all Ingmar Bergman's films. Yeah. Also, maybe Fanny and Alexander, his last film, which is an incredible story Fanny about and Alexander. childhood. All of it. Family. Drama. Wizard of Oz. Amina. I would say put them in front of anything that induces a sense of wonder, whether that's a piece of nature or whether it's something on film. Whatever the content, whether it's the Grand Canyon or a tiny flower that clings to an ice cliff through impossible conditions, seemingly. Anything like that, which I think Star Wars does. And we've got time for one final question for this gentleman here off to the side. Okay, this is a question from my daughter. She said, if you had the chance again and you were asked, would you appear in another Star Wars movie? Yes! <laughs> for better money. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me giving a massive round of applause to our panellists today. Michael Pennington, Julian Cover, Ken Colley and Michael Culver. 
that's all from this special episode of Making Tracks. Panther Tracks Radio will be back next Saturday with the next episode of The Panther Down Under with Adam O'Brien. You can find us in the meantime if you want to, which you might, but you might not. You can find us on Twitter at Panther Tracks, Instagram at Panther Tracks, Facebook at Panther Tracks, basically everywhere at Panther Tracks. Join us again on the next episode of Making Tracks, episode 15. It'll be a regular episode with me and Dave talking nonsense like we always do, drinking water and shooting the doo-doo. And that will be out in a couple of weeks' time. Enjoy your Star Wars. Have a great time. I will speak to you soon.